I'm excited here to uh, open up the book of Philippians with you again. Do you have your Bible? We began last week with uh, the first verse of Philippians, and we are going to go front to back on this book, and we covered the first 11 verses last week, and I'll just give you a super brief review, okay? Philippians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul and Timothy to the saints who lived in the city of Philippi. Philippi is or was a Roman colony in northeast Greece. If you find the Aegean Sea, it's very near the north coast of that sea on a map. And in his introduction to this letter... Paul expresses a few things to those saints in Philippi. He he expressed his thankfulness to God for their partnership with him in the gospel, for one thing. He also expressed his uh, confidence in God that God would complete the work that he started in them. And then he says he's praying for them, and he list out some very specific ways that he's praying for them. He said that he prays that their love and their knowledge and their discernment would abound more and more and that they would show the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus in their lives. And as they do that, bring God glory. End of review. Okay, if you want more than that... You have to go back and listen to the recording, okay? Today we're going to pick right up where we left off. We'll begin today in verse 12, and we'll try to cover uh, verses 12 to 18 today. And it is my prayer that God, by His grace, would use His Word to comfort you and to encourage you and to change you and I. Let's read it now. Philippians 1, 12 to 18. The Bible says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Amen. Today I'd like to look at this passage with you from kind of a two-pronged perspective, if you will. Here's the two prongs. If it's working, I don't know if it will. If it, if it doesn't, <laughs> we'll just listen. 
Number one prong, I don't know if you, thank you, Ryan, you might be bringing it up yourself. Thank you, buddy. Number one, Paul was willing to endure trouble for the sake of the gospel. Paul was willing to endure trouble for the sake of the gospel. And then number two, in the form of a question, why was he willing to do so? In other words, what's so great about the gospel? Was Paul crazy? Was he on something? Or was he on to something? (laughs) Let's look at the first point, though. Number one, Paul was willing to endure trouble for the sake of the gospel. This is really the main point of this whole section right here. And we're going to look at it that way, not kind of on a micro level. We could. We could look at every word and every phrase and, and just ring it out and get what we can from it. But we'll look at it on a more macro level, catching the overall point and just considering that for a while. So Paul basically says that everything that has happened to him has not caused the gospel to be hindered like we might think, but instead it has caused the gospel to flourish. It has advanced the gospel, he says in verse 12. And he describes how that has played out in his life. And he says, in summary, in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is a great example to us, isn't he? He's not mad or bitter that he's in prison. His overall attitude toward what has happened is this, rejoicing. (laughs) And the reason he's rejoicing is not because he's weird or crazy. What's happening here is we are getting a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul and Paul's priority list, if you could view it visually somehow, right at the top was this, Christ being proclaimed. In other words, the gospel is right at the top of Paul's priority list. And then somewhere way down the list were things like his comfort, his well-being, his convenience. His safety. Those things didn't really matter to him nearly as much as the gospel did. And because it was so high on his priority list, he was willing and even joyful to endure some pretty rough things, humanly speaking. Let's take a look at some of those things, okay? Some of the things that he went through for the sake of the gospel. Here's the main one in this passage. He was put in prison. You know, we read that in the Scripture, and we kind of read right through it sometimes, don't we? We don't really let it sink in. What if you or not, you or I, were put in prison? How would that affect us emotionally, mentally? 
this is no small thing to be put in prison, is it? Let's try to wrap our mind around that. Let's, let's put ourselves in Paul's shoes for a moment. This was major. This was life-altering. And we probably don't appreciate the gravity of his imprisonment because guess what? He doesn't complain about it at all. I do recall another letter, though, to the Colossians where Paul simply says right at the end of the letter, he mentions his imprisonment, don't get me wrong, but he never complains about it. He doesn't make that the central focus of his letters, but he says at the end of Colossians, hey, remember my chains. It's like he knows people are prone to forget what he's going through in there. He doesn't make it the center of his communication. He doesn't draw the attention to himself in that way. But just in case they've forgotten to pray for him, he says, Remember my chains. That moves me. That convicts me. What Paul is going through in that moment. Now just so you know, Most scholars that I've read think that Paul wrote this particular letter from Rome. We don't have time to go through that entire argument in detail, but just know this, that in Acts 21, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, which they really misunderstood what he was teaching. Maybe they even deliberately twisted uh, what he was teaching and just threw a a progression of councils and examinations by various government officials. He kind of works his way up the chain of command because no one knew what to do with him. Remember, Christianity is kind of new at this point. And this was sort of an important legal case that no one had come across before. Was Christianity just going to be treated as like merely a sect of Judaism, maybe? Or was it going to be treated as a legitimate threat to Roman rule? How, was, how serious was this going to get, in other words? How would the courts rule? Paul's case would, in a sense, set a legal precedent for Christianity, So no one really knew at the time what to do with Paul. And what eventually happened is that Paul was kind of forced to appeal his way all the way to the top. And he appealed to Caesar in Rome. And that is where most scholars think that he wrote this particular letter in prison in Rome. If you look at the word there in verse 13, uh, it's, it's the word praetorium. That word is translated in your Bible, in, in mine. I don't know which translation you're looking at, but it's translated imperial guard or palace guard or something like that. And most scholars that I've read believe that that's referring to a special group of soldiers that were assigned to a high government official, maybe even Caesar himself. These people would protect Caesar and his family And they'd also watch over any prisoners that were supposed to be examined by Caesar. Okay, And if you flip over, by the way, real quick, flip over to Philippians 4, the end of the letter. 
Look at verse 22. Paul says in the second to the last verse of this letter, all the saints greet you, especially those of the household of Caesar. Do what? Apparently, there were Christians in Caesar's family, the highest man in the land that knew Paul. How do you think that happened? Maybe, perhaps, they are some of the spiritual fruit that he's talking about in our passage today. So, we're talking about what kind of trouble Paul has gone through for the sake of the gospel. He says in verse 13, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's been tossed into prison. Here's an interesting fact that kind of helps us visualize this and kind of put ourselves in Paul's shoes. The way that the Romans would have treated a prisoner like Paul was to basically put him on house arrest in a facility that was owned by them. And he would be guarded by a Roman soldier 24-7 who would be physically chained to Paul. Now that kind of brings a new meaning to the phrase a captive audience, doesn't it? Truly a captive audience. We might think, Lord, why would you allow the greatest Christian missionary, certainly of his time, maybe ever, to be put in jail? Won't that mess up your plan? And God just perhaps smiles and orchestrates this plan perfectly. He's got Roman guards chaining themselves to the missionary, probably having long conversations with Paul about Christ and the gospel. And the message eventually works its way into Caesar's own household. It's amazing. This is an amazing example of the sovereignty of God. God doesn't leave things to chance. There's no such thing as chance in God's world. God works all these things out in his wise providence. And we can't understand what he's doing in every case, can we? But we can trust him that his plan is perfect. Nothing has ever caused God to go back to the drawing board, right? We use that phrase, well, I got to go back to the drawing board. That didn't work out like I thought it was. God never has said such a thing, never has had to. Nothing has ever hindered his plan in one little bit. This is our sovereign God. He's worthy of bowing and bending of knees, the song says. Amen? So, not only is Paul enduring trouble here just by being a prisoner in general, he's also enduring trouble from the outside, from people who don't like him very much, to say the least. There were people who saw his imprisonment as a way to capitalize, if you will, on their own brand, so to speak. Paul had somewhat of a following. He had some notoriety. And there were some who, when they heard that Paul was put in jail, they thought, all right, 
Now I can build my brand. Now I can be the guy. I can build a bigger name for myself now that he's out of the picture. And verses 14 to 17 describe how all that worked out. Paul said there were many brothers who didn't do what I just described. They were actually infused and infused with courage to preach the gospel more boldly. And they did it out of love, he says. But there were some, verse 17, who did it out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. They thought they were going to somehow, by doing this, by stealing Paul's thunder, I guess is what they thought, they thought they were going to make it worse for Paul in prison. They thought they were going to aggravate him somehow. Apparently, they thought Paul's motives were the same as theirs. To build a name for himself, right? And that just wasn't the case. Paul just wanted to see Christ magnified, Christ proclaimed. And he says, whether they're preaching out of genuine love for me and the gospel, or whether they're doing it for themselves, guess what? I'm glad. Why? Because Christ is being proclaimed even more than it was before when I was on the outside of this prison. God raised up other brothers and sisters to do what I was doing and even more because it's not just me now, it's many. And they've gotten more bold and courageous in the Lord. I notice here that Paul didn't actually denounce the teaching of these ones who were acting in selfish ambition. Apparently their doctrine was solid. Isn't that interesting? They were proclaiming Christ, just like the others were, says verse 17. If their doctrine was false, you think Paul would have called them out on it? He's done that multiple times in other letters. But here he says, he insinuates at least that it's not their preaching that's wrong, it's their motives. Apparently their motives were well known. Let that be a lesson to us, by the way. We can have solid doctrine, but our motives be all messed up. We won't focus there today, but it is something to think about, isn't it? So, we see here in this passage kind of two ways that Paul is suffering in that situation. He's imprisoned. And he's got people trying to afflict him on the outside. People are supposed to be brothers. Now we're still under the heading of Paul being willing to endure trouble for the sake of the gospel. And I I just want to point out that there was a whole bunch of other trouble that Paul went through for the sake of the gospel that is not mentioned in Philippians. And I know we'll kind of leave Philippians a little bit here to look at this and that's okay Turn over to 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look at one place where Paul mentions the type of suffering that he's gone through for the sake of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, and I'll begin in verse 23 in just a moment. 2 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three. 23. It's a section of, of a letter here written to the Corinthian church where there were these false teachers coming in, claiming to be apostles when they actually weren't, 
And on top of that, they were downplaying Paul's apostleship. And Paul says in verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says. In other words, he didn't want to boast about his credentials. It's crazy. I'm talking like a madman. But if these false teachers wanted to claim that they were some kind of super apostles, then he says, what had they gone through for the sake of the gospel and for Christ? Are they servants of Christ? Because here's some things that I've gone through. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, plural, with countless beatings and often near death. Wow, that's not even getting into the specifics yet, by the way. He gets into some of them starting at verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That was a Jewish punishment. That's described in the book of Deuteronomy when someone needed physical punishment and the law commanded to do that. They were not allowed to be struck with more than 40 lashings. And so the religious leaders of this day, the Jewish leaders, made it a rule that they would do 39 in case there was a miscount. They don't want to break the law. Okay. Paul says he was dealt the 39 lashings Five different times. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. That's most likely a Roman beating there. By the way, they didn't have any limits on their lashings. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, he said. Acts 14 describes the stoning. It was an act of mob violence toward Paul. Just keep your place there in 2 Corinthians, and I'll read it to you from Acts 14, 19 to 20. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. <laughs> Can you imagine being stoned until you're virtually left for dead? They drag you out of town. They leave you there. They think you're dead. And in Acts, Luke wrote Acts. Luke doesn't say for sure, was, was Paul really dead and God raised him? Perhaps. Or maybe it's just that he was near death and God raised him back to health very quickly. Either way, miraculous, isn't it? But he was stoned, pelted with rocks to be killed. Continuing now, verse 25. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. This was even separate, by the way, from the shipwreck that's recorded in the book of Acts because that one hasn't happened yet. Verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, 
danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Surrounded by danger, sounds like. Danger everywhere he went from all kinds of people. Okay, Verse 27, in toil and hardship. What might be bound up in that little phrase that he doesn't even go into? Through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Those are some of the physical things that Paul had gone through for the sake of the gospel. Then he mentions kind of a different kind of agony. Verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. (laughs) On top of all the physical trials Paul had been through, there was this constant emotional and mental anxiety over the churches that he had started or that he had ministered to on on his missionary journeys. And here's the thing. Virtually all of them were being persecuted for their faith. So can you imagine Paul knowing what they're going through, thinking perhaps late at night on those sleepless nights, he said, many a sleepless night. Were they standing for Christ? Is so-and-so standing for Christ? Is this church caving? Were they turning back? Had they caved to the pressure? Have they denied Christ? Was the labor there in vain? These things would weigh on Paul's mind constantly. And we could talk for a very long time about everything that Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. But the point of all this is this. Philippians 1.18, which is in our passage, if you'll flick back there. Philippians 1.18. The point is Paul indicated that all these sufferings, all of the trouble that he'd went through, including Philippi, including Rome, including Ephesus, all of it, Caesarea, it was nothing to him as long as Christ was being proclaimed. As long as the gospel was going forth, he was okay with it all. As a matter of fact, he was more than okay. He was joyful over it. <laughs> now question, do we think like this? What are we willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? Let's examine our priority list, right? Is our physical well-being and our comfort and our ease and our convenience, is all those things higher on the priority list than the gospel? Higher than the church? Are we wimpy Christians? As Vody Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. <laughs> I say ouch too. Part of the challenge and the temptation of living in a country like ours, a prosperous country, is we too easily fall into the cultural norms of prioritizing comfort and fun and ease 
and well-being over everything else, right? Do you feel that? That's the pull. If it inconveniences me, it's to be avoided. If it puts me in any sort of danger, it's to be avoided. If it's difficult or risky, it's to be avoided. But that's not how Paul thought. And I'm not saying let's go out and do foolish things and just try to get ourselves in trouble or something, but I do think that we Americans are a far cry from this kind of commitment to the gospel. Aren't we? Can we learn from Paul's outlook here? Can we learn from it? He was willing, even joyful, to endure trouble and hardship for the sake of the gospel of Christ being proclaimed. Can we do that? If he can, we can. We have the same spirit living inside us that Paul had. May God help us. May God help us to have this kind of mentality in that same order of priorities, right? Lord, help me. Now let's move to point number two of this whole thing. We listed it out in a form of a question there. If you'll flip that slide there. Why was Paul willing to endure these things? Why was he willing to? Someone might be here today asking that question. That's a valid question. Very valid. Why would someone risk so much and endure so much for the sake of this gospel you speak of? What's so great about that? And I think if, if we had the chance to ask Paul, Paul, why did you do that? Why were you rejoicing in prison just because Christ was being proclaimed? Why is that so important to you? There'd be some things he'd have to say to us. In fact, turn over to the third chapter of this same letter. Philippians 3. Just a couple pages. Look at Philippians 3, 7. Listen to how Paul talks here. Get a glimpse of his priorities. Get a glimpse of his heart here. He says... But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, being like Him in His death, that, my, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's Philippians 3, 7 to 11. You feel Paul's heart there? Whatever gain I had is nothing compared to knowing Christ 
It's all manure. That's what, that's what term he uses, by the way. That's the word in verse 8 that's translated, in my translation, it was translated rubbish. It's the word for manure in the original language. In other words, everything this world has to offer is like a pile of manure compared to knowing Christ and being found in Him and having His righteousness on my account and having this promised resurrection to come. That is what's important to me, not this other stuff, Paul says. Not my comfort, not my well-being, not my physical safety. It's about Christ and what He's done for sinners. So, for anyone that doesn't know what the gospel is all about, I want to tell you this morning. And for those who do know the gospel, this will be a recalibration for you, okay? We need those things, don't we? Like me, your mind needs renewing day by day with the truths of Scripture. You and I need the gospel now just as much as we ever have, don't we? We need to be re-evangelized every day. So what is the big deal with the gospel? Why was Paul willing to go through all this suffering for it? Here's what it boils down to. The gospel solves man's biggest problem. You can bring up that slide there, Ryan, if you would. Just as a mental hanger for us, the gospel solves man's biggest problem. Now, we've got a bunch of problems, don't we? Some bigger than others. But what's our biggest problem? Is it political in nature? Is it human suffering? Is it all the wars that are going on in the world today? Is it genocide? Is it racism? Is it pandemics? Is it cancer? What's our biggest problem? Well, according to what God says, our biggest problem, and this one dwarfs the rest of them, is the fact that we are not right with Him. We are not right with Him. We have fallen short of the glory of God, says Romans 3.23. We are at enmity with God. That means we're enemies with Him by nature. And here's why it's a big deal. If we were to meet him in that condition, he would throw us into hell for our rebellion against him. And not one single person could claim injustice on his part, could they? Because it will be exactly what we all deserve. What's a good judge do? He punishes evil. Well, where's the evil in the world? In you, in me. What kind of judge doesn't punish that? He's a good judge. He will punish that. And on top of this, God is the one who made us. He's our creator. We are accountable to him. Right? It's his world. And there's, there's reasons why there's so many problems in this world. The biggest one is, is we rebelled against him, right? That's why this world is so messed up. 
from sin. It has an avalanche effect. It affects everything. In the garden, Adam disobeyed God. Disobeyed him, did the one thing that God told him not to. And ever since, there has been a very deep chasm between God and us. And it introduced, as I said, all sorts of problems that we didn't have before. And if we miss this, if we miss what our biggest problem is, we will miss the entire gospel. It's that important. Because if you misdiagnose the problem, all the solutions that we could come up with are going to be wrong. It would be like a doctor treating the symptoms Instead of the actual disease, right? The problem is sin. And every other human problem is birthed out of that main problem. God diagnoses us this way. You're dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 How's that for a diagnosis? You sit down with the doctor and he says, Well, we've... I've examined you. I've gotten all the test results back, and they all show the same thing. You're dead. (laughs) You say, what do you mean? I'm breathing. I'm living. The diagnosis in this case is not a physical deadness. It's a spiritual deadness. You and I are like spiritual zombies apart from Christ. We're walking around, sure, but we're actually dead spiritually. And the only one that can give us life is God. And he does it through Jesus. Listen to this verse, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Salvation is not something that we find on our own or that we earn with good deeds or with our moral life. Remember, we're dead. What can a dead man do? Just stink, right? That's about it. So, If we're going to be reconciled back to God, if our hands are going to meet again, He will have to do it. We can't do it. And that's exactly what God has done in Christ. By Jesus' death and His resurrection, He has raised us to new life and reconciled us back to God. It's a miracle. God reconciles all sinners who come to him in faith. Are you kind of getting a better picture of why Paul was willing to go through all sorts of hardships for the sake of this gospel? It's because when Jesus is proclaimed, the Spirit brings people back to life. He reconciles them back to God. He makes them right with him again. And they have a heart to worship God now. And that pleases God. And since Paul lives for God's glory, that pleases Paul too. 
In case it's still not clear, here's what Christ has done in a nutshell. He lived the life that you and I could not live. We disobey God all the time, right? He perfectly obeyed God at every single point. And what happened at the cross was this. Jesus took all of that disobedience from us, put it on himself as if he had sinned. And then he died our death, which was the penalty for our sin. He died the death we, the death we should have died. And on top of that, he gives us his righteousness like a robe we put on. What a wonderful exchange this is, isn't it? We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Man, doesn't get any better than that. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says this very same thing. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So the gospel solves our biggest problem, our sin problem, which is the basis of our separation from God. Aren't you thankful for that solution? If you haven't already come to Christ, believe on Him. Quit striving like you could earn God's favor on your own. It will never happen. Come to Christ and find in Him everything that you need. He'll give you rest. He'll make you right with God. Amen. Here's another reason the gospel is such a big deal. God, through the gospel, gives us our humanity back. Here's what I mean by that. God created us to bring Him glory, right? We talked a little bit about that last time, but here's a further thought. God created us in His own image. Genesis 1.27 says it. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So every single human being carries the image of God. Whether they're an atheist, whether they're a Christian, whether they're a Muslim or a Buddhist, whether they're old, young, black, white, healthy, unhealthy, whatever categories you want to toss out, they carry the image of God, every single human being. That is why every single human being is significant and important and deserves respect and dignity and protection inequality. They're made in the image of God. We were actually designed to be His representatives on the earth. We were supposed to reflect something about God to the whole of creation, right? That's what human beings were made to do. 
But when we sinned, the image of God became distorted. It's not gone, but it's distorted. It's marred. And so in a sense, we lost some of our humanity when that happened. We became less of what God made us to be. And so another beauty of the gospel is that God is now in the business of restoring humanity to its full splendor. And when we come to Christ in faith, that is the first step to Him restoring it. And one day, all of God's people who have come to Christ, all those that are His, they will be fully restored to perfection. The Bible says in Romans 8 that even the creation itself is groaning for that day. So in a very real sense in the gospel, we find our only way to get our true humanity back. And I guess what I'm trying to say with that is this. If we pursue happiness and fulfillment and other things in this world... We're setting ourselves up for disappointment and heartache, maybe even destruction and disaster. There is a good reason why the things of this world don't fulfill us. It's because we were created for something bigger. And that's not me with a mystical self-help pep talk to you this morning. That is biblical truth. The Bible says God put eternity into man's heart. You and I created for bigger things than anything this world has to offer. We were created for the glory of God. What higher purpose is there? Higher than the glory of God. A man named Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. So when we come to Christ, that is the beginning of our journey to becoming who we were meant to be. It's like this epic plan of restoration that God has in store for everything. So, having said all that, what may have sounded like a weird statement from the Apostle Paul that he was actually joyful over these sufferings and this imprisonment and so forth, when you consider how valuable the gospel is, how powerful it is, his statement turns out to be one of the most sane statements that anyone could make, doesn't it? He's seen the power of it. He's realized what's most important. He's got his priorities right. He's not crazy. He's not weird. He's right on track. Actually, when we don't have these same priorities, we're insane, aren't we? We're not seeing the gospel for what it is. So what's so great about the gospel? Well, just just the fact that it solves our biggest problem gives us our humanity back. We could go on with others. It gives us an eternal home in heaven. It gives us a hope of the resurrection one day. We could go on and on, but I'm going to close here. Let me address Christians. Let's ask ourselves, Christians. 
What are our priorities? What are our priorities? Is the glory of God through Christ being proclaimed? Is that our top priority? Is the gospel our top priority? What are we willing to go through for the sake of the gospel? Are we playing it safe in some ways? Are we prioritizing other things over this? There's one principle that's guiding all of human history. It's Christ and his glory. That's what God himself prioritizes. So maybe we need those priorities, huh? Let's be people who share his priorities. And brother and sister, rejoice in what you have in Jesus Christ. It is precious It's invaluable. It's worth every trial and hardship. That's why I named this message, Jesus is worth it. (laughs) And for any, any others today, if you're seeking rest, if you're seeking forgiveness, you'll find it in Jesus Christ. Come to him in faith. Turn from your sin. Embrace Christ as your Savior. Call on Him. Believe on Him and you'll be saved. This could be the start of your adventure that will last all the way into eternity and you will never regret it. You can always come see me if you want to talk more about that as well. I am so thankful for the gospel. Are you? It's why we're here. Let's pray and close this section of the service. Father, today we have seen from your word how you turn bad situations like imprisonment and suffering into great glory and joy. You use all things to bring glory to Christ. May we be willing players in your drama. It's all about you. Bring our priorities in line with yours. May we endure all things for the sake of Christ and Him proclaimed and glorified. May we ourselves, Lord, be faithful and courageous proclaimers of Christ and His gospel. Bring people, Lord, into your family with the gospel and use us however you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.